and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast, co-hosted by Kyle Caldwell and Sam Benstead. Coming up later on in the podcast is an interview with a contrarian investor, Barry Norris, who was interviewed by Sam. Would you like to kick off, Sam, by giving our listeners a flavour of the questions that you put to Barry and the topics that were discussed? Thanks, Kyle. So, yeah, Barry is definitely a contrarian. He runs the Argonaut Absolute Return Fund, which is a strategy that aims to make money in both rising and falling markets. He strongly believes that inflation will be high for the foreseeable future and interest rates will keep rising. I asked him what it would mean for stock markets and which sectors he is long and short. His strategy is paying off at the moment, making investors about 20% so far this year. The interview is well worth a listen if you want to hear a non-mainstream view about markets, but be warned, his outlook is not that cheerful. Well, before we get to that interview, as usual, me and Sam will firstly be chatting through a couple of news stories related to funds and investment trusts. Since the recording of our last podcast, the US stock market has officially entered a bear market, having fallen 20% from peak to trough. Sam, there's a lot of pessimism in the air, isn't there? Let's firstly start off with the latest Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, which found that investor sentiment is dire. Sam, so there's plenty of things on the worry list, but what are the main concerns that were cited in that survey? So I think it's helpful to start with what the survey is and what it does. So Bank of America canvases big investors, tapping the, tapping the views of money managers with more than $690 billion in assets. This month, it found that global growth optimism is at an all-time low and fears of stagflation which is high inflation, low growth, are at their greatest level since June 2008 during the financial crisis. This translated into fears that corporate profits would decline. The bank noted that pessimism and profits tends to occur at Wall Street crisis moments, such as the bursting of the dot-com bubble, the Lehman bankruptcy, and the early spread of COVID. So sentiment is definitely dire, and actually it should be. The S&P 500 has its worst start to the year since 1932, falling about 22% so far. Whether this makes it a great buying opportunity or the midpoint in a more serious crisis, only time will tell. A global recession it was also cited as one of the main risks by fund managers that were polled in that survey. But even in a recession, there are some winners. Not every sector or company will be worse off. Sam, you recently spoke to a number of fund managers and asked them to name which investment areas they are backing to continue growing their revenues and profits, even during a recession. What was highlighted? That's right. So I've been chatting with global equity specialists about the sectors they think will be most resilient in a recession. Three areas kept coming up, and they were healthcare, cloud computing, and computer chips or semiconductors. Companies that provide essential medical tools for operations, such as Stryker or Intuitive Surgical, we're back to keep growing as hospitals fill up with non-COVID-related patients once again. On cloud computing, where companies pay the likes of Google, Amazon, and Microsoft to run their IT systems, high growth is set to continue as companies look to run their businesses more efficiently. Computer chips are in more and more things, from data centers that power the cloud to electric vehicles. This means more demand, even as economies slow. Some stocks set to benefit are... Texas Instruments, the American company, which provides cheap chips using cars, and ASML, the Dutch firm that provides the machines needed to make the most advanced chips. However, in another sign of the market mood being one of caution at the moment, 
The world's biggest fund management company, BlackRock, said that it is not buying the dip. Its research team said despite the sharp falls the US markets have experienced so far this year, valuations have not improved, the US central bank could hike interest rates too aggressively, and corporate profit margins were coming under pressure. Although there has been a silver lining for fund investors, the US dollar has strengthened against the pound, so therefore the losses for UK investors in both US active funds and passive funds haven't been as heavy as the 20% fall that the S&P 500 has experienced so far this year. It's been one of the few bright spots for UK investors. A weak pound means that anything listed or paid in dollars becomes more valuable when converted back to sterling. So the around 10% rise in the dollar against the pound this year has hardly impacted the bear market in US and global shares. That is if investors chose an unhedged share class, which most do. This is generally the best option for investors as hedged share classes, which try to eliminate the impact of currency fluctuations by using derivatives cost more. The dollar is also likely to perform well if high inflation sticks around because it is a safe haven currency. So that provides an extra level of return when markets go down. This trend has also been benefiting uh, companies that pay uh, their dividends in dollars. Those dividends are now worth more when converted back into sterling. And this in turn gives UK investors an additional boost. Sticking with income, myself and Sam discussed in the last podcast that dividend investing is now back in fashion in response to the volatile backdrop for stock markets and the dividend recovery that's been taking place. I took a look at the buying behavior of interactive investor customers over the past three months to the end of May, and I compared that with the prior three months from the start of December to the end of February. And I found that in the most recent three-month periods, there were five new entries to the top 30 most bought investment trusts, And for funds, there were three new members to the top 30 that have an income focus. So for investment trusts, the five that have been climbing up the rankings are Next Energy Solar, Renewables Infrastructure Group, Murray International, Law Debenture Corporation, and Tritax Big Box REIT. And the four funds uh, that pay income that have been proven popular are the Clearbridge Global Infrastructure Income Fund, which is in Interactive Investor Super 60, Fidelity Global Dividend, also in the Super 60, and BlackRock Natural Resources Growth and Income, and JP Morgan Natural Resources. So do check out the full article in which there's analysis of the findings on ii.co.uk. And finally, there was a recent announcement from investment veterans Nick Train and Michael Linzel. The duo have pledged to manage money for at least another seven years. Sam, could you run through this new story? Sure. So this was actually quite a big story as Train and Linzel are two of the UK's best known fund managers. In the annual results of Linzel Train Investment Trust, the chairman revealed that they had committed to at least seven more years running money. This includes the Linzel Train Global Equity Fund, UK Equity Fund and Japanese Equity Fund. Succession planning was also given a bit of colour. There are now five additional members in the Linzel Train investment team, including a portfolio manager and two deputy portfolio managers. Michael Lim, a director of Linzel Train with 21 years at the firm, is passing on his chief operating officer responsibilities to Josh Saunders, who joined the company in May 2021. James Bullock manages the newly launched Linzel Train North American Equity Fund, which is the first strategy not run by Train or Linzel. 
This is all encouraging news for fans of the Linzer Train investment approach. Train and Linzer are giving themselves ample time to hand over their fund and teach their team everything that they know. While uh, Train and Linzel are not hanging up their boots, a fellow veteran fund manager who will be retiring soon is um, Simon Knott. Knott, uh, for nearly 40 years, ran the smaller company-focused Rights and Issues Investment Trust. He'll be retiring in September, and that investment trust will be moving to Jupiter under a new lead manager, Dan Nichols, supported by Matt Cable, that duo run the Open Enders Jupiter UK Smaller Companies Fund. Not is the second longest serving investment trust manager behind Peter Spiller of Capital Gearing, and he'll continue to be involved with the trust as a non-executive director. I am delighted to be interviewing Barry Norris today. He manages the Argonauts Absolute Return Fund. Investing globally, the fund can go both long and short, meaning it can make money when share prices rise and fall. His strategy is one of the few to have actually made money over the past 12 months, returning about 30%, including a 20% jump year to date. Let's start with that performance. What have you been doing that has been so successful over the past year or so? Well, look, I think um, we, we have a... Uh, uh, over the last few years, we, we've we made a lot of our returns from the short side of the book. And shorting has, has become a lot easier as central banks have exited free money. So if you like, the, the bull market of the last few years has been sponsored by central banks through zero interest rate and quantitative easing. And because inflation is now the the, 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 the logical consequence of that, um, central banks have had to reverse that policy. And that's really resulted in liquidity coming out of financial assets, which makes shorting easier. Uh, and at the same time, we have always had a more of a value bias to stock picking. And therefore, as the market has moved away to from a, a, a growth at any price, investment environment to one which is more focused on valuations today and what shareholders are getting back from companies today in terms of returns. And we've entered a, what I think is the start of a long bull market in commodities. That's also been very helpful for our long book. So this combination of returns from long and short book um, has, has been behind returns. And obviously, that's that's great to see. So digging into that long and short book, you mentioned companies that were overvalued. So assume you're taking short bets against these types of companies. Can you give us some more detail on the the types of companies that you've been shorting and um, you know where you've been most successful? Sure. So so I would say there are three basic types of shorts: frauds, um, which basically management team making up profits, often stealing from shareholders. Um, secondly, overvalued growth. And th there has been many examples of stocks which have been trading on absurdly high valuations where managements can never deliver um, on growth expectations. And I think that has been probably the biggest area of returns um, over the last six months because it was actually quite hard to bet against overvalued growth companies for, for previously. 
and then value traps. So these these are companies that the business models be disrupted. Um, they may, on the face of it, look cheap, but shareholders are never going to see that um, in terms of returns because um, profitability is in long term decline, and often uh, debt holders are, are, are prioritised instead of equity holders. And this all feeds into this shift from growth to value shares that you mentioned. It's, it's been a dramatic past year or so, 18 months. How much further do you think this rotation has to go? Well, if we look at uh, the capital cycle, as I call it, over decades rather than just years, I think it's got a number of years still to go that we're just at the beginning of this. Uh, because what we saw is that from from 2007 to 2021, growth stocks outperformed value stocks almost every year. And there were good reasons for that. We were in a period of weak economic growth. There was lots of innovation in terms of technology. Interest rates were were very low and in fact negative. And therefore, um, you know, valuations became uh, less important. And those companies that were able to deliver top line growth were, were put on a premium. Um, now, uh, that's all changed because um, central banks have exited um, free money. We've got inflation. That means that people are more focused on the value of money today rather than the uncertain value of money in, in 10 years' time. And particularly for companies that are have never targeted profitability, only sales growth, um, the market has particularly punished those companies because essentially they are concept um, growth stocks that only do well when the market is willing to fund them. And as soon as we move into a bear market, most of these companies, which frankly probably always had um, uh, difficult uh, business models that we were skeptical of, uh, now if they can't make a, pro- a profit, many of them will go, go bust. So if you like, it's often said that the uh, the job of the central bank is to remove the punch bowl before the party started. Um, clearly, over the last few years, uh, central banks um, have have let the party, uh, uh, everybody at the party, arrive and be on the dance floor, and are now only just trying to remove the punch ball. And the problem is that the the bands still need to be paid, and that profits need to be generated uh, in order to to, to fund um, business models. And I think we 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 have started to see uh, a, a downturn led by those speculative. Uh, growth stocks. And I think that the recession that is coming will be particularly difficult or for technology stocks. And you might say, well, um, isn't isn't growth always the best place to invest? Isn't uh, innovative stocks always the best place to invest? Well, frankly, no, because over long periods of time, you see often a decade where growth stocks do well, then a decade where value stocks do well. And that's that's about the capital cycle. There are obviously two main aspects to to uh, capitalism: supply and demand. And over the last ten years, if you like, most investors in public and private markets have allocated nearly all of their capital to technology. And therefore, in the tech sectors, there's lots of competition. There's loads of um, average businesses that have been funded that shouldn't have been funded. And they're finding that competition is too stiff and they can't make a profit. And then we contrast that against many old economy sectors like technology, where 
for various different reasons, low commodity prices, ESG, um, the, 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 the low growth uh, 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 world economy, investors haven't been wanting to invest. And as a result, we're seeing inflation because simply uh, there's not enough capital being invested in those uh, industries. So for, to my mind, uh, value stocks uh, will, will do well uh, for at least another five, if not 10 years. And I think inflation will also stay pretty high and sticky for the same period of time because the main cure to inflation is actually uh, for old economy companies like commodity companies to actually start investing in, in new supply. And obviously that takes years. And can you give us some examples of companies that you are long and short at the moment? Sure. So maybe starting on, on the short, but I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily advise DIY investors to short stocks. Um, and if you do, um, make sure the position size, I guess, is small enough for you to cope with the volatility. Um, and that's sort of a, a key aspect to to what we do. And, and you know, one of the reasons why, sh- you know, if you want, if you, if you want to, um, access a non-correlated return that's one of the reasons why we think that the future of active investing is more through double alpha of long and short books rather than uh return profiles that diy investors can't easily replicate but i can talk through um certainly some of our most recent successes though i would also say the reason why uh we charge an active management fund to run the fund is that um these are not sort of one decision stocks that you you take a position and then forget about it um you know we are an active uh manager and and we will therefore change our views over time and you get the benefit of that if you invest in our fund and you don't and it's caveat emptor if you invest in anything um on the basis of me talking about it or and or, or being perceived to recommend it so uh with that dis- disclaimer um you know one of the or a couple of the most uh best successes in our short books one uh beyond meat um again one of those uh classic um overvalued growth stocks uh it, when it came to market uh, there was lots of excitement about vegan burgers uh then it turned out that um, you know, pretty much anyone could make a vegan burger. It wasn't terribly difficult. The company had no economic moat. Um, secondly, uh, the 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 demand for vegan burgers has been massively overstated. Um, some people actually like the taste of real meat, uh, which has came as a surprise to some of the analysts. And um, the company traded at an absurd price to sales multiple. It still does. And even though it's fallen, what, 80% from its peak, and it's never made any any money, even at the operating profit level. And it has a billion of dollars of debt. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any way it's ever going to pay back that debt. So uh, it seems to me that Beyond Meat will, will, um, will, will, will end up uh, going bust. Um, and, and I'd say on the long side, the biggest long position at the moment is in a oil tanker stock called Euronav. Uh, the reason why we like oil tankers is, um, one, um, if we're not going to import oil from Russia, we've got to import it from the Middle East. And Russia has got to export its oil to 
um, people that will buy it off them, which uh, is typically at the moment only India and China. All of that is good for demand for what we call ton mileage, i.e. Um, if your your journey time inevitably lengthens if you're getting it from somebody further away, that's good for oil tankers. Euronav is also in the process of merging uh, with a Norwegian peer called Frontline. We think that merger will happen and, and Euronav's um, the, the the cheaper way into the the combined company um, Frontline is paying with shares. There's there's a nine percent or ten percent um, uh, discount in the Euronav share price to the theoretical value of that offer. We think the deal will happen. When it does happen, this will be the the blue chip oil tanker stock. And I think over the next few years, oil tankers, which is actually the one area of the shipping market that hasn't been in a bull market of late. Uh, tanker rates will will rise significantly and stay there for quite a long period of time, and that would be good for shareholders in oil tanker companies. You said technology stocks were was an area to avoid, particularly the unprofitable ones or the ones that have you know got so much growth baked into their valuations. But what about the large technology stocks companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google, which are actually arguably you know very mature businesses that create a lot of Cash. How do you think those those names might perform? You know, as we head into this you know recession around the corner, this this high interest rate, high inflation environment. What's your view on those types of stocks? I think there'll be a less bad place to be than the the profitless tech stocks, but I think the history of stock market cycles always suggests that the the leaders of the previous bull market are are laggards in the bear market. And when we go round to a new bull market again, it's often led by something else. So if we look back to, for example, the the, the 60s when there was this incredible bull market in the so-called nifty 50 stocks, um, everybody thought that these were one decision stocks that you could hold um, through, through whatever uh, economic environment, whether it was a strong growth environment or recession. And then in the 70s, they were effectively taken out and shot one by one. And, and this this narrative around um, fangs, for example, which have obviously replaced Nifty 50, um, the, 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 the narrative often fades for, for various different reasons. But the, but the, the, the main reason is because um, the stocks are either over-earning or they're overvalued. And I think what happens... When cycles change, as you get a high degree of mean reversion, uh, and previous winners become the laggards in the in the new market. Great. So you don't like technology, but you do like natural resources. Within resources, what are the the different kind of subsectors that you like, and and how are you playing this theme? Is it via individual companies or commodities? So it's via individual companies, so companies that will benefit from high commodity prices lack of investment and so if you like um you know i'm delighted for example that so much money nowadays is run by so-called esg investors that refuse to invest in commodity stocks because um whilst that continues to be the case um you'll get very little new supply in commodity sectors and prices will remain high for a lot longer and i don't think you know people generally understand today for example that the reason why, for example, um, gas, uh, uh, diesel is at a record high price in the UK isn't because of Brexit or the fact that the oil price is, is, is 
you know, back over $100, it's because um, nobody's invested in a new oil refinery in Europe for a long period of time. And a lot of refining capacity was shut down during COVID. And it's actually oil refiners that are making super normal profits at the moment. And if governments want to put taxes on these refineries, then they'll invest even less. And I think the same thing is happening in North Sea Oil, where the government thought it would be a good idea to um, put windfall taxes on North Sea Oil production. And North Sea Oil production, which is already hard from its peak, will continue to decline. And that will make Britain um, just more um, reliant on unstable um, countries that aren't our friends to supply oil to us. Um, so when I when I look at the areas uh, of commodities that I'm most excited about at the moment, um, energy is the main one because I think the supply side in energy across the, across the energy complex, whether it's producers, refiners, or energy shipping, as 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 obviously trade routes change. So for example, Europe will have to import more oil from somewhere else if it doesn't import it um, from Russia, and Russia will have to export that oil to different countries. Um, agriculture, uh, where obviously it's a non-discretionary product, but um, we've had very little capital going into the sector, and and now with, with Ukraine and Russia likely to be offline for a long period of time, the supply response will take a number of years. And then I think the third area which we're increasingly interested in is just gold, because gold is a is a is quite rare as a commodity in that it's it performs typically best in a recessionary scenario. And I think as we go into the recessionary scenario, um I think gold, which has obviously been an underperformer, will start performing a a, a lot better. And that's also partly connected to crypto, which of course crypto for a while was a challenger to gold uh but but i think now we're 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 seeing if you like uh the fact that crypto is just uh private fiat rather than proper um hedging of 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 fiat currencies uh i think gold should now come into its own and this idea of a recession coming around the corner and gold being one of the beneficiaries Will a recession be horrible for natural resource stocks as um, as global trade fades? Are we going to see a crash in, in quality prices? I would say it depends what sort of recession we get. Um, now, recently, of course, every recession that we've had of late has been a, a deflationary bust where um, uh, prices of, of stuff has, have gone down. And as, as a result, uh, the nominal economic growth, growth rate has been worse than the real economic growth rate. So, you know, for example, the reason why the 1930s was so bad is that you had deflation at the same time as you had recession. And as a result, for example, you know, the value of a, of a dollar in 1930 uh, uh, went up um, over the next three years by nearly 80% simply because you had such vicious deflation, which of course also put a lot of people out of work. Now you compare that to the sorts of recession we had in the seventies, where actually we had uh, 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 economic recession, but because inflation never really came down below six percent, actually nominal growth was still good. So most people live in a nominal world. Companies live in a nominal world where 
uh, obviously they're they're thinking about their their profits in a nominal sense. And so you can have a real recession, but if inflation stays high, then it probably is not going to lead to massive unemployment because companies aren't going to cut workers and wages still go up. So I think uh, uh, um, it's possible to have a real recession without a nominal recession. And, and that's obviously less bad if you're um, a voter in the real economy, which is why obviously inflation is a, is a, is a better outcome for politicians than deflation. But in financial markets, it's terrible because um, in a deflationary recession, you get uh, often interest rates coming down, which provides, if you like, the silver lining to the to the recession for investors. Um, and the problem with a with a nominal recession is that you get um, economic growth, which is which is in real terms negative, but in nominal terms still positive. But you don't get interest rates coming down to offset uh, to 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 offer any valuation support. So often in a in a deflationary recession, profits will will come down, but valuations will go up because interest rates have come down. The problem in a nominal recession is the other way: profits don't really fall, but valuations um, don't go up, and in fact, probably contract quite significantly. Because there's no, there's still this uncertainty about inflation, and this and, and interest rates don't go down. So I think the debate now actually isn't about whether we're going to see a significant slowing in real economic growth and probably a recession. The debate is whether that recession will kill inflation or not. And I suspect that we see the inflation growth rate come down quite a bit in a recession. But as soon as we're in a recession, central banks will ease off and inflation will just go right back up again. And that's certainly what happened in the mid-70s and the early 80s. And there's a great stat that since World War II, as soon as inflation has gone above 5%, we've actually had to have had positive real interest rates for quite a period of time in order to bring inflation back down 5% to under 5% on a permanent basis. And if, as we see at the moment, interest rates of 1.5%, 2 2%, maybe 2.5% might cause a recession, then I think the chances of us getting to positive interest rates when inflation is you know, over 9% in the UK, rumoured to be 11% next, just think what would happen to economic growth and politics if we had interest rates of 12-13% now for a sustainable period of time. So I think um, what I think I, I would suggest would happen is um, you know, the, the, the hikes in interest rates that we're going to see will slow economic growth, we'll probably see a recession, and then central banks will lose their nerve and we'll stop hiking and we'll probably ease and then inflation comes back. So I think we're probably going to get a series of uh, stop-go cycles. Um, in, and, and obviously, um, within those cycles, there'll be periods where commodities do less well uh, and periods where deflationary assets might do better and periods where gold is a commodity that benefits from low economic growth because people are worried about money supply. Um but overall, 
the next 10 years will be one where commodities do very well and where inflation is, is stickily high and where investors in general don't pay high multiples for companies on the stock market. And finally, the question we ask all of our guests, do you personally invest in the fund? I do indeed. Um, all of my investments are or outside um, the house that I live in. All of my investments are in uh, either Argonaut or Argonaut funds. So that's all we have time for for today. We hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll be back in July. In the meantime, do check out our analysis of funds, investment trusts and exchange traded funds on ii.co.uk. Mm-hmm.